Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Yeah, and we have to be clear, it's, there's, there's two... The, the first marriage that Evelyn Wall had was, was also to, to, to Evelyn, right? So Evelyn and Evelyn, right? Was, anyway, one's a male name, one's a female name. Um, I'll try to make it clear later. Uh, there we go. We're making sure that's, that's going. I do kind of need my notes as we're talking. All right. So I want to thank um, this chapter here at Georgetown University for inviting me to talk uh, about this topic. It's a topic that's very dear to me. Um, the issue of the literary influence of Virgil and St. Augustine on Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead or Visited is something that um, kind of struck me both as a Catholic and a classicist, and it's something that, you know, as we're, as we're discussing it, the paper that I have goes much deeper. And first thing I want to kind of check to, in the room here is how many people have actually read Brideshead or Visited? Got a fair number of hands. Okay, this is good. So you guys are going to fact check me. It's good. And then, um, how many people have read Virgil's Aeneid? Similarly impressive number of hands. I think we can go a little deeper here. This is awesome. And um, how many people have, again, full honesty here. I, I will literally check your, your uh, is, it, is it Goodreads, whatever it is, or you track your thing? I'll, I'll hunt you down. Uh, how many people have read St. Augustine's Confessions? A little, a little bit. Okay, thank you. That's five points oh, to yeah. Gryffindor for honesty there. And well, confessions is going to be what's pertinent here. I mean, it's not like we're um, yeah, we're not going to be talking about the eclogues or these sorts of things. Um, I just want to make sure. Sorry, one second here uh, that I don't go over time. Um, so. This paper looks in many ways, in, in the end, at the importance of memory in Brideshead Revisited by examining how that uh, work remembers in turn two other great works of literature that took memory as their theme, the Aeneid of Virgil and the Confessions of St. Augustine. Um, before we get in that, I kind of want to set as a tone or a theme um, one passage from Brideshead Revisited to try to understand what Waugh is about and what is, what is he trying to do. Um, so this is from the prologue to Brideshead Revisited. Um, those who have not read it, it has a basic, um, well, the structure is debatable, and we'll talk about that in a second, but it has a prologue and an epilogue. And in the prologue, um, Charles, uh, Charles Ryder is commissioned to, to go off in the army at the age of 39 and um, go into new grounds. And that's where he comes to Brideshead. In fact, Brideshead is by the River Bride, um, so Bride's Head is actually the source and the font, right? So those of you who've read the book, the fountain, right, is the actual, this is debatable, and you can, we can talk about this, whether or not that fountain actually is the head of Bride's Head, right? So thinking about it as the source of that water. Um, so anyway, as, as they come here, um, he has a younger man assigned to him, Hooper. And um, in fact, there's a very comical scene where he sort of checks and sees where, whether any newspaper is correctly describing the youth, because anytime they say young people or the youth, he substitutes the name Hooper, right? So the music of Hooper, the literature of Hooper, right? The, the fashion of Hooper, right? And these sorts of things. Um, and I want to make a clear distinction in terms of like what Waugh saw as a turning point here culturally, what was separating um, his generation and the generation that came after. 
Um, so Hooper had wept often, but never for Henry's speech on St. Crispin's Day, nor for the epitaph of Thermopylae. The history they taught him had had few battles in it, but instead a profusion of detail about humane legislation and recent industrial change. And I'm going to pause there for a second, because again, this is the sort of trend that we saw in the 20th century that actually says, okay, we're actually not going to call it history anymore. It's just the social sciences, right? Um, Gallipoli, Balaclava, Quebec, Lepanto, Bannockburn, Rossambeau, and Marathon, these in the battle in the West where Arthur fell and a hundred such names whose trumpet notes, even now in my serene and lawless state, called me irresistibly across the intervening years with all the clarity and strength that boyhood sounded in vain to Hooper. Um, and what I want to show you is that while this is a, a novel which is set, at least in the framework during the Second World War, right? So there's the, both the prologue and the epilogue are set during this time period. What that framework is, is getting him in mind of is the great literature that comes out of battle and out of war, out of history, right? So you can kind of go through all of those things that he just named. In fact, here I've done that, right? So Agincourt is in Shakespeare's Henry V. Thermopylae is in the famous epitaph of Simonides upon the Spartan dead. Gallipoli is remembered in Patrick Shaw Stewart's uh, Achilles Stood on the Trenches, which is, um, I, I, I doubt anyone actually has read that poem or heard that poem, but that's worth hunting down and finding. It's a very beautiful uh, World War I poem. Balaclava, the battle, is remembered in Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade. Quebec is remembered in the poetry of Charles Sangster. Lepanto in G.K. Chesterton, who, uh, of course, was uh, a Catholic literary author just before the generation of Evil and Wong. Bannockburn in uh, Robert Burns's poetry, Rosenbow in the Song of Roland, Marathon in Herodotus, The Last Battle in, in the West in Mort d'Artour. What we have in the early 20th century and mid 20th century is this great books movement in uh, places like Columbia, uh, University of Chicago, St. John's College, my own alma mater at the University of Dallas. Right, the sort of six-foot libraries that you have of like the Encyclopedia Britannica saying like these are the great books, the Oxford version of the great books, the Harvard classics. Right, this was sort of the the history of the time, and what Waugh is at least setting up in the framework here is not just the fact that Hooper uh, doesn't care for this literature, but what to do when you stand in this tradition, right, which again, is a great literary tradition which produces great literature. So deeds produce words, and you're an author participating in this, and you have this for your audience, right? Hooper doesn't want Brideshead Revisited. Hooper wants graphs and charts and newsreels, right? And so it's, it's Waugh who, if you, if you know a little bit about when this was composed, Brideshead Revisited, Wall himself matches the age of Charles Ryder. So Charles Ryder in the prologue is 39 years old. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm over 39, I'll just give you that fact. So um, when I first read this in my early 20s, I was like, man, 39, this guy is ancient. What's he doing in the army? And now that I'm older than 39, I'm like, yeah, I can take these guys. Uh, so uh, just, just to throw that in there. But um, Wall, just like myself, <laughs> Uh, overestimates just how healthy and connected he is to that 20-something-year-old man that he was. So um, during jump training for paratroopers, um, the actual the author, Waugh, um, made, a, made a bad jump off of one of the platforms and broke a leg. And he was, he was laid up as he was waiting for the leg to heal. And this is how Brideshead Revisited first came about, as he was doing this long therapy and, and healing himself. And we're going to go through sort of like what he's doing here, because I, I imagine here that what he's doing is trying to set himself down here, right? That what you have is World War II and Evelyn Waugh, Brides had Revisited. Now, arguably, and you'll, you'll see and we'll talk about, he becomes dissatisfied with Brides had Revisited, and he writes what I argue is actually a better trilogy, a better book, which is the Sword of Honor trilogy, which is worth your time to go read. Um, and I would say that is the great epic of the Second World War. Um, but this is still a great book. Um, before we go into the major theme of memory, I just want to show you 
some very obvious connections between the books that we're talking about so that when I bring in the theme of memory, it's not like, oh, hey, memory is really important in Virgil and memory is really important in St. Augustine. It's very obvious that Waugh is thinking about these books and that's why we're, you know, it's, it's not just taking random books about memory. They're, they're influences, key influences. Um, the author's note to Brideshead Revisited um, famously begins, I am not I, thou art not he or she, they are not they. Um, and one of these things is that at the time, there were famous people. Um, Wall was part of this beautiful young people set. Um, this is the, the age of W.H. Auden and other people who are making a splash in England. And so everyone's kind of trying to read everyone else into the narrative and the text and also protect, protect themselves from copyright, or uh, not, not copyright, libel issues. And yet at the same time, it's not just about the fact that I am not I, thou are not he or she. It's not just about, there's not a one-for-one -one equation between these characters and um, specific living people. It's also about the fact that as he's pulling from Virgil and St. Augustine and these other authors, there's a mishmash, right? So at one point, a character is going to be like Aeneas. At another point, that character is going to be like Dido, right? And that's what he's trying to get across. So later on in the text, in the... Again, the second, or again, depends upon what edition of the book you have, or the third part of the book. Um, he's on a ship with uh, Julia and his wife Celia, his then wife Celia. And the, the narrator, that is Charles Ryder, says, Soon only Julia, my wife, and I were left at the table. And telepathically, Julia said, like King Lear. Now, we can have like a whole sidebar discussion afterwards with drinks about like what, what that says about like the male psyche, that he thinks that he can read telepathically what Julia is telling him. Um, but we're going to sort of put a pin in that one. So he, for now, let's pretend that he telepathically can read Julia's mind and she telepathically says like King Lear, right? And then Charles responds out loud, only each of us is all three of them. And then his wife, completely oblivious, says, what can you mean, asked my wife. And then Charles responds, Lear, Kent, and Fool. Now what's happening here is they're on this ship and Charles is discontent. Uh, he's gone away for two years to try to find himself in Latin America as a painter, and he's not really done anything else. And he comes back to his wife, he comes back to his discontent. Again, uh, one of the things, if you start reading that chapter, the children that are referenced from that marriage are always Celia's children, her children, the children, never my children. And so it's a big question of, you know, um, marital fidelity and what's going on there. That's, that's a debatable point that's in the text. And the question is, is how reliable of a narrator uh, Charles Ryder is. Of course, the, I also jokingly say things like that myself to my wife sometimes. Like, you know, if there, a child breaks something and it needs attention and I need to go somewhere else, like, your daughter broke this, right? Um, but every single reference in, once Charles has children, it's never his children. He never actually claims them. It's always Celia's children, her children, the children, right? And there's a few other clues, but we're going to leave it aside and, and focus more on just this point that Charles imagines that he can call down this storm. And for the rest of the, this ocean cruiser from America back to England, there is this storm that lays up everyone but just Julia and Charles. And it's like the scene in the middle of King Lear where Lear has been stripped of everything by his two daughters. Well, there's three daughters, but the other third daughter doesn't factor into that. The two daughters are sort of sent him packing, and he's out in the wilderness, and Kent and the fool are the only ones left to him, right? And so each of these people then can possibly be each of these characters. And so it's a whole mishmash of that. Um, before we go into who is who and, and sort of tracing that out and the sort of very obvious verbal echoes that we have, um, I want to point out what I'm doing here just overall in the, in the talk. So when we talk about correspondence in literature, there are different parts and components. And just for the sake of giving a framework, I'm pulling here from Aristotle's parts of tragedy from his poetics, right? So the, the first part is the plot, the character, thought, diction, melody, and spectacle. And for Aristotle, these are in a hierarchy. That is, plot should be more important than character. Character should be more important than the individual constructed thoughts. Individual constructed thoughts should be more important than um, individual words. Like again, like I have this really good word, but I don't have a sentence to put it in. Well, don't put it in there, okay? 
And then the melody, which refers to the dancing in Greek choruses, which really doesn't apply to a novel. Um, and then spectacle. Um, you can think of this today to try to understand modern American cinema. Modern American cinema, you put spectacle right up there on the top. I think of like our latest, like what do we have coming out now? Like Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, right? So yes, spectacle goes on top. Uh, you know, yeah, there's going to be some awesome music, right? Which again is one of those questions, if you take away the awesome soundtrack, how good is this movie? Right? Or is it just the actually good songs and random plot points? And then you have some awesome one-liners, right? Tough guy one-liners from your action movie. And then you have, you have some characters that we like. I am Groot, right? And then, of course, plot really don't look too long because it's not going to make sense. Anyone who saw is it? The, sorry, I'm, again, there's, there's an exact correspondence here. I'm just saying we've upended everything about how literature is supposed to work. And I went and saw Quantum Mania, Ant-Man and the Wasp. I mean, it's just completely inverted, just all spectacle, no actual plot. And the plot, to, anyway, this is not a talk about that. That's for after lecture. Um, so I'm going to show you some crazy charts now, right, um, sort of laying things out. It sounds like a lot of people in the room have actually followed along and read some of these things. I didn't ask how many people had read Homer. I'm assuming all of my classics nerds, um, fellow classics nerds, I'm a classicist, have read their Homer. Um, and one of the very obvious things in Homer uh, is that uh, the, the Homeric question, right? So I'm putting here sort of two color codes, right? The Iliad in red, the, uh, which is again either written before or written by a wholly different Homer. Who is Homer? I don't know. We're not going to get in touch with that. Right? That's a centuries long debate. So we have the Iliad and then we have the Odyssey. So the Iliad in turn inspires the Odyssey, inspires and parts the Odyssey. The Odyssey has some obvious callbacks and references to that. But then what we have in Virgil is this echoing of Iliad and the Odyssey, but an inversion of in the order, right? So those of you who are, are Latin students, the, the famous you know, first opening words to Virgil's Aeneid, arma rumque cano, right? So I, need, I have a, a class assistant here. What is arma rumque cano? Yes. I see a arms in I sing of arms and a man, right? And what you have here is an echoing back to the, the first lines of both the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? So the, the Odyssey is going to start with the man on air, right? So this is the Polutropos on air, or the Andra, um, which, is, which is Odysseus. And then, of course, Iliad is, is all about the arms and about warfare, right? And the, the odd thing that you have is that in the Iliad, it's the battle before Troy, and of course it's not all of that. Um, I remember as a young boy in middle school, which I was that kind of kid, my mom gave me an Easter basket copy of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, imagine that as a seventh grade present. Um, so the Iliad was only about that last sort of epic confrontation between Agamemnon and Achilles, and then Achilles and, uh, and Hector, and everything else that ensues there, but actually Troy doesn't fall. And then what we have in the Odyssey is the wanderings of Odysseus himself and the eventual homecoming. Well, we have an inversion here in the Aeneid, right? Um, there's more concern with the female and female relationships in the Odyssey than there is in the Iliad, even though Briseis and Helen do feature in the, Il the Iliad, uh, but in the Odyssey, and this, this section that we have in books one through six of the Aeneid, which retells all the wanderings of Aeneas around the Mediterranean and the relationship between Aeneas and Dido. And then eventually you have in Aeneid seven through 12, you have that retelling of that epic battle, the conquest of Italy, right? And then what I would argue, and other scholars have argued, is that, again, this is the connection, is that there's some scholarship that's out there. Um, Andrew Moran, for example, for the University of Dallas, although I never studied with him, it was only later, I was in graduate school, that I found his work connecting it, found a correspondence between St. Augustine's Confessions and Evelyn Waugh's Brides Had Revisited, especially looking at books one through six and seeing how they fit to the first half of Brides Had Revisited at an Arcadia Ego. And then St. Augustine's Confessions, books 7 to 13, and A Twitch Upon the Thread. Um, those of you who are kind of doubting why does this part of St. Augustine's Confessions 7 to 13 
how does that correspond to a twitch upon the thread? Again, I'm assuming that you've actually read these texts, and I apologize if you haven't. But to make it clear, um, Confessions, Book Eight. If you're familiar with Saint Augustine's Confessions, it's the story of him from from early, you know, early life from when he was first born until eventually his conversion. But his conversion happens when? Yeah, Book Eight, Book Nine, his dear mother dies, and then Book Ten, he starts. So now that I've told you my life history, and he keeps going, right? 10, 11, 12, 13, he starts talking about, so anyway, talking more about my life's history, let's talk about the concept of time, let's talk about the concept of memory, let's go into the Psalms, and, and, and so then he gets into exegesis in books 11, 12, and 13 on the book of Genesis. Um, and if you reread Brideshead Revisited, I'd have you pay attention to the fountain, which figures most prominently in the second half of the text. That fountain is a cascading uh, image which is Edenic, right? So that is the beginning of Genesis is the exegesis that you find in 7 to 13, and the end of Evelyn Waugh's Twitch Upon uh, Brides That Revisited, Twitch Upon the Thread, goes back and forth, back and forth, revisiting this fountain, which is like the book of Genesis in the animals and, and uh, flora and fauna that it betrays. So again, and then you have additional scholarship that also exists that shows very clearly the correspondence between St. Augustine's Confessions and the Aeneid. In fact, it's kind of verbalized, although it's funny because it's a, it's, a, it's a feint, right? Because in the beginning of the Confessions, one of the things that St. Augustine says, those who've read the Confessions maybe can help me here, he talks about studying Virgil, right? And he talks about the state of his own sinfulness, and he, com he explicitly compares himself to Dido. He says, why was I weeping over Dido and not, is an imaginary literary character, a made-up figure, right? And not weeping over the fate of my sinful soul, which was bound for hell, right? And so he, he eventually is going to reject, at least philosophically, the, the sort of literary sentimentalist romantic person that he was, and this is in, in Confessions 3. But at the same time, we have a number of correspondences, and I'm going to lay them out for you, because I don't think this is going to do it well enough. But another point to sort of follow along is that there's actually another way of reading it. That is, Virgil's Aeneid has been read structurally as sort of corresponding to Iliad and the Odyssey, that is, books one through six and seven through 12. But other thematic ways of reading it is, um, you know, Aeneas and Africa and the journeys in one through four, the, 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 the struggles with his own people in books five through eight, and then the final foundations of what Rome is going to be in nine through 12. And so you have this tripartite structure. And what's really interesting is that if you look at the history of the text that Brides had revisited, Wall himself is playing with this. So in the 1945 edition, it's two books, Et in Arcadia Ego, A Twitch Upon the Thread. Late in the 50s, he comes back to Brideshead Revisited and is asked to revise it. In fact, there's a wonderful letter that he has to Graham Greene about how much he doesn't like it anymore, which is kind of one of those things that you never really can take Wall seriously, because if you, you see interviews with him and he's saying, well, you know, they're like, what's your favorite book that you've wrote, right? And he's like, obviously, Helena. Well, Helen, you know, St. Helena, which is, again, this, this like, it's him writing this young adult novel about the Empress Helena. It's not his best book. It is so obviously his worst book. And every interview, he always just straight face says, Helena, it's my best book. Super. It was great, right? Just, again, it's like, I don't know. It, it would be like, I'm from the University of Nebraska coming here, right? We just had what I, again, if I was being sarcastic, we had an awesome football season last year. Just great. I love rewatching the film from it. I just sit there like on Saturdays and just rewatch film from the 2022 season, right? No, it, it's another joke. Um, but an interesting thing that happens in the late 50s is that you're going to find that he breaks the book up into three parts now. So no longer is it simply um, Sebastian and Charles's relationship in Et and Arcadia Go. It's now, and then the second book, which would be A Twitch Upon the Thread, which is Julia and Charles, it's now three parts. The initial uh, idyllic relationship between Charles and Sebastian in Et and Arcadia Go, um, Sebastian's leaving and Charles's search for him and Brideshead deserted, and then now a third book, A Twitch Upon the Thread. So there's a new structure given unto all of this. And I really, for time's sake, I'm not going to go into it because I think there's a little more fascinating things that we can do in terms of actually looking at the characters and see how they connect. 
So I want to show you some explicit callbacks between the confessions and uh, brides that are visited, right? And the, the, the first time this really struck me was maybe my third or fourth read-through. Um, there's a section where Charles Ryder is meeting with the younger sister of Sebastian, his, his uh, friend and reputed lover. And uh, Cordelia says, I heard he was dying, she said, a down and out called Flight, whom the fathers found starving and taken in in a monastery near Carthage. So this struck me as very interesting that Sebastian's journey is one that you see, which is very much like this, right? So Sebastian is going to go, uh, starts at home, goes to North Africa, and then eventually him, Rome, is a metaphorical thing. He ends up inside the church. So same too with St. Augustine, right? Starts here, journey from um, his original birthplace, then to Carthage, then to Rome, and even Book 9, right? We end with Monica and Augustine in Ostia Antica, right? So the journey in the Confessions, not the literal journey of St. Augustine, but the journey in the Confessions is a journey to Rome. And so too with the Venus, right? So this is what happens with Sebastian. And again, there's another wonderful thing where Sebastian himself actually likens himself to St. Augustine, but it's this playful 20th century, who was it used to pray, oh God, make me good, but not yet? Which is again, it's an obvious thing, right? The author knows who said that. It's an invitation for you in the text to think about that. So if the author is asking you to stop and think about who that is, and he's making you work to think of who that is, then it's not just an explicit one, it's one that he's sort of tagging with a big red flag and saying, you need to pay attention to this. Um, a few other correspondences here, but across the books, right? So you have this goddess mother for Aeneas, like Venus. You have the saintly mother, Saint Monica. You have the pious mother and Lady Marchmain, right? We have um, the father insisting to Aeneas that he carry the Lares and the Penates, that is, gods who are sort of separate and different. From those of you who are classicists, right, we know the Lares and Penates are kind of, they don't really kind of fit into some of the normal things that we think of in the nice Percy Jackson Olympian type stuff, right? Um, and so there's this older, stranger, more pagan in some ways divinities. Um, and then we have in St. Augustine, the insistence of his father on the class, classical education that he receives in Medora. And then this interesting thing where um, if you read the book, um, again, the, the flight family, the Marchmains, are a Catholic family. And so they normally send their, their children off for Catholic education. But in the case of Sebastian, uh, Lord Marchmain put his foot down and insisted that Sebastian be sent off to Eton to receive his, what you know a Catholic at least would perceive as his pagan classical education, right? Um, we see the alcoholism, which is a running theme between these two stories, other correspondences. Again, so Augustine is gonna end up in a monastic community outside of Carthage. Sebastian's gonna end up in a monastic community outside of Carthage. Of course, you know, for the saint, what happens is these other people come along and they, it's one of these fascinating things. And I, again, study patristics, read St. John Chrysostom where he talks about this. Like there's a danger if you're like a eloquent young man of just walking down the street, people going and be like, we're gonna make you a bishop, right? So you have to be very careful. And this is what St. Augustine fell victim to, right? All right, I put that jokingly. But St. Augustine's sort of raised up to, to bishophood, right? He wants to be like St. Anthony. He wants to hang out with his friends and read and, and be a monk. Instead, he's raised up to be a bishop. And then you have this 20th century inversion, sort of, um, or perversion of it, right? Where what we have is Sebastian, the alcoholic, who goes and seeks a monastery, pretty much where St. Augustine went and sought a monastery. But instead of being raised up to a bishop, he's so drunk and so ill and so useless that they just make him a porter. And yet he becomes sort of like this saintly porter. You know, he's, he's a drunk, he goes out and drinks, and they know that but then he comes back. And in fact, we have actual saints that we have in the church, and I forget the name of it right now. Yes, thank you. Yes, exactly. Um, where we have this tradition. Um, so, or, or what you would think of, um, and again, another great book, um, but more recently, the, in the Orthodox tradition in uh, Loris, right? The tradition in the Orthodox community of the Holy Fool. Um, but again, I am not I, you are not he or she, right? And so 
Charles is also both Aeneas and Augustine. And I would say that there's a, a difference way, way in which they all correspond, right? So uh, all three I would indict as ciphers of characters, right? That like you just can't really pin them down of who they are. The first time you meet Aeneas in the Aeneid, he's just down on the ship praying that the gods will save him, right? Not really a huge heroic person, yeah? And St. Augustine as well, I mean, so many of the characters in the Confessions are actually the interesting ones, right? They're the ones who actually drive and promote what's going on here, the thinkers and the people. And so too with Charles. Charles is a complete cipher. He just takes his personality from other people, right? Um, you can kind of tell that if you, if you kind of are attuned to like early 20th century decor, he starts out college as kind of that kid who puts up Van Gogh's Starry Night poster on his dorm room wall, and then he meets Sebastian, and Sebastian teaches him how to dress and how to walk and how to talk. Of course, this is like the sort of stuff that's actually been made into horror films, right? Of like that person who like starts to, was it the, um, the talented Mr. Ripley? Yeah, exactly. So again, it's like a, 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 a horror version of Brideshead Revisited, right? Um, Charles doesn't go around murdering people. He just abandons his wife and children. Um, so again, we have, so one way of reading the mother situation is, again, the, the saintliness of them. Another way of understanding it is the absenteeism of the mother, right? So we, in Aeneas, you have this absentee mother, again, who, uh, if you've read the Homeric hymn uh, to Aphrodite, she, she conceives Aeneas with Anchises and then says, okay, I'm going to go have this baby, see you later, right? She's going to give it to wood nymphs, and then when the, the wood nymphs have raised it, then give it back to Anchises, and she'll kind of pop in and out. And then you have this absent mother in, in St. Augustine, where it's not actually absent through her own uh, sort of choosing. It's the fact that St. Augustine keeps moving on, right? So he's, he's absent from her himself. And then this absent mother with Mrs. Ryder and the, the sort of search for a mother figure, especially going back here in this second uh, book of Brideshead Deserted in Lady Marchmain. So Charles's search for a mother in that. Um, Again, the, the fathers and their insistence upon the classical education, you have that in Aeneas and Augustine. And then in Charles, you have these wonderful interludes where Charles goes home to his father, the widowed father. And he, if you pay attention, what he does is he studies Etruscan antiquities. And if you know your Herodotus, which again, Herodotus is explicitly mentioned in Brides That Are Visited, the Etruscans are supposed to actually be the early Trojans, right? And so this conflict that you have in the Aeneid over what to do with the religion and piety of the, um, the Trojans gets subsumed into the Etruscans. Well, here we have Charles studying, his father studying the Etruscans, right? All of them find, are finders of Rome, right? Uh, of religion or of the actual place. Uh, Aeneas is going to abandon Dido. Augustine is going to abandon his mistress. Charles is going to abandon Sebastian, then Celia, then Julia. In fact, um, there's a wonderful correspondence between um, the Aeneid and Brides that are visited when Charles goes back to find um, Sebastian drunk in Africa with his new lover, Kurt, and Sebastian pretends not to know Charles, which is eerily similar to the moment when Aeneas goes into the underworld and finds Dido, and Dido is with her first husband and ignores Aeneas. Um, we have other correspondences with the sun. We have the estranged son, Ascanius, or also called Eulus. There's also a little joke here in Brideshead Revisited where we can't quite tag down the name of Charles's son. Um, Celia calls him John John. Charles has no clue who John John is. Um, and then, of course, there's Adiodatus, which is a little different of a relationship because Augustine actually did love that relationship. And then... I think one of the most fascinating ones, the one that we're going to return to, is that moment of conversion for St. Augustine, at least, was the moment where he hears the voice telling him, tole lege, tole lege. So Latin people, what does tole lege mean? Take up and read. Another synonym for take up would, of course, be pick up, right? And at the end of the novel, and we'll come to this later, um, Charles, when he is leaving Brideshead and has this conversion moment, he hears some voices off in the distance saying, pick them up, pick them up, hot potatoes, right? Now, it's a totally ridiculous thing, um, but there's this weird moment because the moment before he hears them saying, pick them up, pick them up, hot potatoes, he's contemplating um, the, uh, the uh, 
gosh, what the um, in Lent, uh, actually the the Triduum, um, when everything is huh? Yes, 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 he's, he's, he's contemplating the Tenebrae, where everything is devastated, right? Christ is taken out of the tabernacle, right? Where have they taken him, right? The, liter- the altars are stripped, everything is laid bare, right? And then all of a sudden he hears, pick him up, pick him up hot potatoes, and in the next few sentences, all of a sudden he, he's like, oh, wait a second, everything's okay. And they're like, you're looking chipper, right? He has this moment of conversion, hearing something that is eerily similar to what St. Augustine heard that converted him. Um, I'm gonna give you a little sidebar, but I'm gonna, um, I can only, I have to do this as a, as a Pindar scholar. There's this cousin Jasper, um, who's kind of this one-off character. Um, the description that when we first meet Jasper is that Jasper had to the exhausted but resentful air of one who fears he has failed to do himself full justice on the subject of Pindar's orphism. Now, this struck me as strange when I first paid attention to it because I already knew sort of historically what people have known in the scholarship is that Mr. Samgrass, who is this kind of dean overseer that Lady Marchmain puts in charge of Sebastian, is directly modeled off of the famous classicist C.M. Baura. And C.M. Baura is a famous Pindar scholar. So I'm like, oh, this is Baura. This is amazing, right? Also, I don't think I really want to meet Baura in person because he seems like a horrible person if if he's like Mr. Samgrass, right? But then we find Pindar here again. And I was like, well, there's got to be more to this, right? Oh, wait a second. Well, well Jasper is just a version of Casper, right? That the, the wise man, the pagan who seeks after Christ. And Orphism, at least, again, there's a difference here between what we now in the 21st century understand about Orphic religion and mysticism and what at least in the popular conception in the time of Evelyn Law was understood about Orphism. So this is the great time of uh, Fraser's Golden Bough, and a lot of these um, sort of like, uh, those of you who are classicists and eventually go off to graduate school, it's called the Cambridge Ritualists. It's a school of thought, uh, Jane Harrison and others who are all sort of moving in this area. But at least what, what Wall would have picked up if he knew anything about Orphism at the time would have been this ritual involving bread and wine, which is remarkably similar to the Eucharist. And again, the, the important feature in Pindar's Orphism is that it's a move away from the Homeric conception of death, where those of you who've read the, the, the Odyssey, right? Odysseus goes down to the underworld, he meets Achilles, and there's a famous, I see a couple of heads nodding, so I'm gonna ask. All right, so what does Achilles say to Odysseus down in the underworld in the Odyssey? He's like, again, like, oh man, Achilles, you're the great, greatest, you're the best, isn't everything awesome? And, and Achilles responds back to Odysseus, he says, I would rather be the lowest serf, right, on a farm, than be king of the dead, right? So for Homer, there's no really great afterlife, right? This is kind of a known thing. And yet in the Orphism that we find, which is really, as a Pindar scholar, it's dealing with sort of the Pythagoreanism and mysticism that we find in the island of Sicily. Um, and the question is, is how much of it is Pindar and how much of it is the person that he's writing the ode for? But either way, there's this early belief in an afterlife and then, of course, um, again, for those of you who are going to take my Memes 101 class IRL in real life, uh, we have belief in the resurrection, right? So this correspondence here between these two things. So, again, I'm just trying to build up all the character connections, but the, the bigger issue that I find and the more interesting issue that I find is that all three works. So, again, if you're with me here, and I think that there's enough evidence here of explicit correspondence of going to Virgil and going to St. Augustine, is that all three works take as one of the core themes of it, this idea of memory. So in the beginning of the Aeneid, you have this invocation of the muse. And of course, the muses, do we know who the muses are? All nine muses are daughters of, of what uh, goddess? Not Artemis. Mnemosyne. Yes, exactly, the goddess of memory, right? So memory gives birth to the muses, right? So there's a connection here between memory and the imagination. It's one that's explicit in their, uh, in their beliefs, and it's one that we, we should think about here. So muse, remind me of the causes. So why are the muses proper goddesses to evoke, uh, uh, evoke when you're, invoke, sorry, when you're talking about reminding you things? Because they're the daughters of memory, right? So there's all, again, we're not going to go into it, but there's, there's so many instances where Virgil's playing around this idea of memory. 
Uh, in fact, one of the more famous phrases from Virgil in the Aeneid, right, is that perhaps even these things will be helpful, right, to remember, right? That there'll be some, again, it's debatable. Is it giving you joy to remember these things, these har- so- earlier sorrows that you went through, or is it something that's going to help you along? Memory is, is psychotherapeutic in Virgil in some ways. In the Confessions, we have this statement as he's going on from the death of his mother to actually his search for and biography of life with God. And this is why we lose track of earthly time, because God doesn't exist in earthly time. So he's searching for God, and he's not finding God himself in all of his memories. And so he's, all right, well, God, I'm going to look for you in the powers of memory itself, in the intellect. And he says, great is that power, memory, too great, O God. And he goes on to give you a whole book, which is just devoted to the topic of memory. And then what I would remind you of is, again, it's a useful exercise, and I've done it, is just sitting and reading Brides That Are Visited just once with a red pen and under, underlining every time you see the word memory, recall, remind. It's one of the most important words thematically in the book. Um, in fact, if any of you are, are burgeoning digital humanities people, you just go ahead and get a, a text file of it and just run it through and, and, and go ahead and give me the numbers. Um, I, w- I would argue it's in the hundreds, if not thousands. But this is the invocation that we have at the beginning of book two, a twitch upon the thread. So he restarts the narrative by saying, my theme is memory, that winged host that soared above me, one gray morning of wartime. Right? So this is the invocation. So similar to the invocation that we have in the Aeneid, we have an invocation here at the beginning of the book by Charles Ryder. And of course, we can't forget the fact that Brides That Are Revisited is not actually the title. The title is Brides That Are Revisited, The Sacred and Profane Memories of Captain Charles Ryder. So the, what this book is, is memory. Right? It's an act of memory. And I want to talk for a second um, briefly about what memory is in Augustine, and then Aquinas, because this is a Thomistic Institute lecture after all, and then we'll try to wrap it up. So in Augustine's conception of memory, the only thing that really exists is the present moment. And yet we have access to both the past and the future through intellectual acts. The intellectual act that brings your mind into one with the present is the faculty of attention. If none of you have ever read it, there's an excellent little essay by Simone Weil, the French philosopher, on the right use of Christian studies with a view to the love of God, which talks about the fact that the most important virtue that you can cultivate in your prayer life is actually the faculty of attention. Um, and it, it, it sort of directly, I would say, arguably, ties in with what St. Augustine's saying here. Right? To, to bring your mind at one with the present is this faculty of attention. The past doesn't exist to Augustine, right? And so what the past is, is the mind, the memory, made present to the past, right? So that is, in some ways, you guys, I'm going to be a little bit of a geek here, right? Some Doctor Who fans, right? That your mind is a TARDIS, right? It's bigger on the inside, and it also goes through both space and time. As St. Thomas Aquinas says, the mind is where it acts, right? I used to teach uh, at a boys' school, and uh, we had some lovely pecan trees outside, and I would sometimes see the boys with their minds acting where the squirrels and the pecans were, rather than in the classroom, right? And so the mind is where it acts, so I can take myself right now and visualize myself in Rome, drinking a glass of wine, and then voila, I am there in some way, right? And then, as well, in the past, memory can take me back there, and yet it can't actually physically take my body there. And the imagination, in a more nebulous way, can reach out and anticipate the future, right? So there's these three faculties of the, the human intellect, all of them in their relationship to time and what they do. The interesting thing about the past and memory, though, is that, again, as I said, there's sort of a therapeutic aspect to memory. Memory, by having memories and reminding ourselves of things, we're able to process and go through. In fact, sometimes we don't know everything that happened, right? Uh, being someone who's married, Occasionally, you have disagreements with your spouse. Those of you who are undergraduates and aren't married, right? guess what? You're going to have disagreements with your spouse. Guess what? You may find out that you were the person who didn't close the fridge door. You may find out that you were the person who didn't actually turn on the dishwasher. Right? Whatever that is, right? the memory, right? your memory of turning on the dishwasher and walking away is not squaring well with the actual facts that are presented to you, and you're going to have to re-remember things 
and heal and reconcile and say you're sorry. Always say you're sorry. Um, and then this crazy graph, and I'm sorry to do this to you all. So it's a TI lecture. And what we have here are the faculties of the soul according to St. Thomas Aquinas. And what I want to do here in terms of trying to understand what's going on is take St. Augustine's confessions and his conception of memory, seed it inside of, of the Thomistic framework of understanding the soul, and then try to show you what Evelyn Wall is trying to do in this novel, right? So intellectually, we have the speculative intellect and the practical intellect, right? These are intellectual components and part of the rational powers as well as, well as with the will. The vegetative powers we know, right, uh, that is to grow, to reproduce, and to digest food, right? You share that with fungus and plants and trees and everything else, right? But there are certain powers that we share with animals, and these are the animal powers, right? The sensory powers of locomotion, right? The ability to move your body is not really that distinguishing. Sensation, sight, hear, smell, touch, taste, right? All of these are internal processes of an external world. The imagination, St. Thomas Aquinas is going to seat down here in the animal powers. There are two kinds of imagination. There's um, reproductive imagination. Now, reproductive imagination here is, is less uh, sexual and more understanding of reproducing a sensory experience, right? So anyone have a dog? No one has a dog. Washington, D.C., apparently you guys don't have dogs. You have a dog. Okay, great. So your dog, presumably, and do you sometimes indulge your dog with food that they shouldn't have? Yeah, great. We're going to pretend it's bacon for this instance, okay? She is. She, oh, she does yeah. like bacon? Oh, I thought you said she's bacon. Never mind. No. Yeah, she does. She does like bacon. Okay. So, again, your dog at one point has had all of these um, sight, hearing, smell, touch, taste, right, of bacon, right? And so she has stored in her sensory powers the memory, the reminiscence, or sorry, the recollection of what bacon is, right? And so if she has one sensory experience of the smelling of bacon, sorry, the smelling of bacon, then she can use her imagination to recall the sight, the hear, the touch, and especially the taste of bacon, right? And so she will act in a way, so using her sensory powers of locomotion to move herself to the bacon, right, and then consume that bacon, thus fulfilling the imagination, right? So there's sort of an animal imagination, right, where the dog can imagine bacon being there, but what a dog's not going to imagine is the creative powers. So famously, Thomas Aquinas says, you know, we have sensory powers that give us memory of gold and sensory powers that tell us what a mountain is, right? And so we can imagine a gold mountain. Now, a dog's not going to imagine a gold mountain, right? Or at least we suppose. So all of these are kind of seated in here, and this is what's going on here. And if I have one sort of difference with Aquinas, it's that I would argue the ability to separate the human power of memory and the human faculty of imagination from the animals signifies that there's some use of some rational power going on here that makes it a distinctly human act, right? So that literature and art, again, art, Charles Ryder himself is an artist, so it's one of these things that's going on throughout the book. It's a use of the rational powers in understanding the, the external world. So you have sensory input and then the processing of that sensory input. But that sensory input's not just the things that we see in real life, it's also the books that we read, the movies that we consume, the, the, the art that we, we look at, right? Um, and so for Aquinas, in understanding this, there's kind of a trifold way in which we arrive at virtue, right? We have a tradition, which is part of the, um, the speculative intellect. We have practices, which are part of the practical intellect, and we have narrative or stories that help us to realize a virtue. Um, this may not make sense, and I know that for time's sake I'm running through a lot of this, but let me kind of put it in your own terms, at least here at, at Catholic University, right? So the speculative intellect has as its object the truth. So objects of speculative intellect by itself are things like sacred scripture, the creed, dogma, theology, catechisms, Right? Things like um, what Julia refers to, the penny catechism that's indicting her all the time. The practical intellect has its object of good, right? directed to action of the aspect of truth, understanding things to be done and made. So things like, okay, I understand the, the dogma and beliefs concerning the Eucharist, now I'm going to go to Eucharistic adoration. I understand uh, theology and my catechism, I know that I have to go to Sunday Mass. But I also have 
this imaginative faculty of the soul, and its object is not truth and it's not good, but it's rather the beautiful. And it's directed to authentic it's directed to authenticity and to the aspect of truth. Its narrative understanding is who am I, of what communities or narratives do I belong? So for you here at Georgetown, right, um, calling this place, which in the emails I never knew what it was referring to at first, was the Heights and um, uh, Hoya Saxa, right? Is this, am I pronouncing this right? The, the hilltop. Oh, I got it wrong. Okay. <sighs> Please don't throw me down the steps. Uh, again, the famous steps, right? Which, again, you guys, again, these are narrative traditions, right? So at least in, in Nebraska, we have a big football tradition. It's one of these things of, like, you can speculatively understand the sport of football. You can practically understand football, that is, you've gone to practice. But also, sometimes you pull into a huddle and you say, remember that time that team two seasons ago was in a situation that was similar to this? Well, that's also going to lead to a virtuous action. So either you can, again, I don't imagine any one person does one of these things by itself. Again, you're not going to make the football team if all you do is read books about football. Right? You're also not going to make the football team if all you do is play without actually understanding the rules of the game. Right? And then again, if you all you do are read stories and watch ESPN 30 for 30, you're not actually going to be great at football. Okay? But all of these things combined to make someone who really excels at football or really believes in the real presence of the Eucharist or really makes good art. And this is what Wall was doing. So to take us back to the beginning, I talked about how he wrote this book when he was laid up in the hospital um, with that broken leg from the parachute jump injury. Right? And he writes later that it was a bleak period of present privation and threatening disaster. That is, all the, um, the rationing that was going on during that time and the, the, the disaster of World War II, the period of soya beans, right? that is processed food and basic English, which is this move of like, um, to, to strip away like all of our extra vocabulary and give us something that we could, a worldwide language, right? It's, it's set in this utopian vision, but what it does is it takes all the color out of, of the diversity of English words and vocabulary. And in consequence, the book is infused with a kind of gluttony for food and wine, for the splendors of the recent past, and for rhetorical and ornamental language, which now, with a full stomach, I find distasteful. And so what I'm going to argue is that what Wall is doing is going back to the things that filled his memory. Again, like going back to these books, right, to understand that narrative, to go back to Shakespeare, Simonides, Tennyson, Chesterton, Burns, Herodotus, right? He's going back to all of them. He's putting himself in there. And again, just like Dante, who writes himself and Virgil in together, and it's not really fan fiction, it's just good art. And good art is not fan fiction. It just steals and appropriates and says, you know what? I am as great as Virgil. I am as great as St. Augustine, right? I, I belong here on that stage, right? And that's what Wall is doing. He's playing around with all these diet ideas and tinkering with them. There's an image I want to leave you with towards the end of, of Brideshead Revisited where Julia's got an emerald ring and she's turning it by the, the fountain and the, the water is reflecting off the fountain and then it's reflecting off the ring and it's making all of these shadows. And I, I would argue that that's what's happening here. You have Virgil, who's holding a mirror up, and again, for your classics people, it's not just to, to Homer, it's also to Apollonius of Rhodes and others, right? So you're holding this mirror up, and you read new images when you see things in a mirror. But then you have a mirror to a mirror to a mirror, and what you have is kind of this, you, have you guys done this? I used to do this when I was a child, right? This sort of infinite regress when you hold mirrors up to mirrors and you look in them, and you catch all these different angles, and it has this weird sort of vertigo kind of effect. What you have is, Homer being reflected in Virgil, Virgil being reflected in St. Augustine, St. Augustine being reflected in Evelyn Waugh, and he's playing around with all the different aspects of it. And again, he's not, he's kind of more like Julia. A lot of the time in that narrative, he's kind of just sitting there in his sickbed writing this book, and he's like coming up with, okay, well now this person's going to be like Aeneas, now this person's going to be like Dido, and we're just kind of moving it around. But all of it is trying to figure something out and heal who he is right now by going back to memory. That is, conceiving in time who he is. Paying attention to who he is right now is not going to help him. He's laying in a bed, and he's all broken, right? And Charles Ryder is that way too. And so thinking about the past 
and reorganizing and restructuring the past and making sense of his own experiences in light of other great people who've come in the past, then gives him a new narrative for who he is in the present, which then gives him hope for the future. And I want to end here with that hope for the future at the end of Brideshead Revisited. So he says, the builders do not know the uses to which their work would descend, which I would argue is not the physical building. It's Homer and Virgil, St. Augustine. St. Augustine has no idea that there's this guy in the early 20th century who's going to be sitting on a hospital bed talking about him, right? He has no idea to what uses the confessions would be made, right? They made a new house with the stones of the castle. Year by year, generation after generation, they enriched and extended it. Year by year, the great harvest of timber in the park grew into ripeness until in sudden frost came the age of Hooper. The place was desolate and the work all brought to nothing. And this is from the, the Tenebrae service, right? Quo modo sedet sola civitas. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And yet I thought, stepping out more briskly toward the camp where the bugles after, after a pause had taken up the second call and were sounding, pick em up, pick em up, hot potatoes. And yet that is not the last word. It is not even an apt word. It is a dead word from 10 years back. Something quite remote from anything the builders intended has come out of their work and out of the fierce little human tragedy in which I played, something none of us thought about at the time. A small red lamp flame, a beaten copper lamp of deplorable design, relit before the beaten copper doors of a tabernacle. And what he's saying is, again, Virgil doesn't have to know about Catholicism, right? He has the castle, and St. Augustine took that castle down, and he reused the bricks and built a new foundation. And what I am experiencing now in the 20th century is the guy who's going in there and saying, St. Augustine, this is great, but all I have is the 20th century. I have processed food and soybeans and basic English. It's, but you know what's still there? I have that thin red flame that's still beating there, right? And it just fills in with this joy, and so it, it breaks this correspondence here between all of these works that represents an attempt to search for beauty and find truth and goodness and find that they're all one. So again, it's, it's one of these things, I, I hope at least this talk in some way has inspired you to, to not just read Brideshead Revisited or return to Brideshead Revisited to revisit Brideshead Revisited, right, just like Charles Ryder does, but to read those other works and look for the details and the correspondence that Waugh so obviously is playing with. He, he's inviting you in to play this game with him. And summer break's just around the corner. I invite you to do that. Thank you. We've got about seven minutes for a Q&A, so um, just ask one question to pick you out. Um, and if you could, Professor, just repeat the question. Sure, for the audio, yeah. Yes. I, wonder, I mean, this is, I guess, a basic question, but how, I was wondering if you could just delve a little bit deeper into how memory plays a part in, in Virgil and then how that's brought up in, in Brideshead. Yeah, so Virgil, memory is a key theme, just sort of looking at the very beginning, he sets it out programmatically. Um, one of the images that always stuck me as a, as, a, as a student of reading the Aeneid is when he actually lands in Carthage and he goes into the temple of Juno where Dido is holding court, and there are um, these images made up on the wall of various scenes from the Trojan War, and what art does is it's processing in a new medium the things that happened in the past. And so as Aeneas is inside this temple and looking at these images and seeing from sort of an external perspective things that he holds in his own memory, he's gaining a new insight and perspective on all that, and it brings him to tears. Um, this is the, the phrase that we, we sometimes quote in Virgil of sunt lacrimae rerum, right? These are the tears of things. Um, and there again, the, the other episodes where, um, again, just remembering things is, is constantly sort of the clue to unlock everything that's going on, right? Like, for example, there's a scene where Ascanius is laughing when they, they've settled down in Italy and um, they, they don't have any uh, uh, silverware or anything like that to eat their food. So they're making sort of pizzas or, or whatever you want to conceive of it as early versions of flatbread dishes, right? And so they're eating sort of this flatbread dish, and after they've eaten the, flat, the stuff that's on top of there, then they eat the flatbread, right? 
And so then the son, Ascanius, remembers that there was this prophecy that they were going to like get so hungry they were going to eat their plates. And he's like, well, wait a second. Like This was told to us. We were greatly afraid of it, and we've lived in fear of this. And then now we remember it, we remember it rightly, and we put it in a new orientation, and suddenly it's a cause for joy. And it's this um, hidden expectation. Um, again, like, but there's also vicious elements of memory, too. I mean, you think of the very end of the Aeneid, where um, Virgil's standing, uh, not Virgil, <laughs> Aeneas is standing over top of the, 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 the native uh, hero, Turnus. And Turnus is wearing this uh, belt, this baldric, because again, you don't wear your sword on your on your waist, right? That's a bad idea. You actually want to put the weight on your shoulder. So anyway, has this baldric, right? But the baldric uh, de de depicts the um, the moment where, if you go into the classical mythology, the the the, Dina uh, the fifty daughters of Danaus and the um, fifty sons of uh, Aegyptus, right? They're 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 married, and there was one daughter. So all these daughters didn't want to marry their cousins. Sorry, it's a long myth. I'm cutting it short. Um, None of, these, none of these girls wanted to marry their cousins, except for one. One held up a lantern, and when she went to go kill him, uh, she had mercy, right? And it's, again, it's a really strange thing, because like, it's this belt, and on the depiction of the belt is this moment of mercy, and that's when Aeneas is like, yeah, this belt used to belong to my friend, and you killed my friend. You didn't show him mercy. I'm not showing you mercy. Uh, and it's one of these like, inherent like, contradictions inside the text. It's like, wait, what's going on here? And so it's kind of one of those memory things where it's like, is he remembering the myth? Is he remembering the friend? What's going on? And again, it's a sort of like game that Wall likes to play as well, where the memory is confusing and jumbled up. And um, again, like Virgil's in many ways, like the perfect sort of um, author for someone writing the early 20th century and dealing with like sort of the issues of modernity and authorial narrative um, that you have going on in, in Wall. Does that, does that answer the question? Are there any other? Yeah. Do we have, with our current habits and culture, the capacity to appreciate and write a book like this? I would say that um, one of the first things that you need in sort of like the, the medium, right? Uh, of, again, the question is, is it appropriate, right? That is, there are different, like, genres and different styles of entertainment um, or literature or cultural memory that are, that are different and, and come and go. Um, I would argue that, again, uh, all of us with our buzzing phones and everything that's distracting us completely lack this one basic faculty of attention, which is why you have movies and media that today upend the basic understanding of what Aristotle says we should be enjoying, right? That plot actually should be the thing that is chief and goes down to spectacle. But instead, you have us who like are constantly needing to be like get our dopamine rush from like oh someone liked my tweet or you know someone watched my Snapchat video or you know my TikTok video has gone viral. Again, like there's again like even TikTok as itself is emblematic. You can't. I, I dare you. In fact, someone proved me wrong. Like, give us a great epic on TikTok. I know that we had like the sea, the, the sea shanty craze like a year ago. That everyone was really into sea shanties thanks to TikTok, right? But like, is anyone going to get into long form epic due, due to TikTok? I, I doubt that. Again, I'm, I'm not trying to be like kind of this um, uh, troglodyte curmudgeon or anything like that. I just think that. Um, Again, like we, we, we mass consume all of these things, even the irony of the fact that this is being recording, recorded right now, and the fact that there are going to be more people who are listening to me in a sort of, again, is it work to Mystic Institute? Catholicism is at the heart of it. Sacramental understanding of the world, world is there, and yet we're offering up the anti sacrament of persons communicating across time and space and not actually being really present to each other. Again, the same way idea of like, go read Plato's Phaedrus, right? And, and, um, you understand like this idea of like what's the problem with writing, and we've been wrestling with this for 2,500 years, right? Um, I think that you know writing as a technology that that isolates us and takes us away from the beautiful experience of like the Homeric culture of memorizing again the Iliad or the Odyssey and the the rhapsode reciting that, right? So writing takes us away from that, but I'd argue that writing as a technology is kind of like the sailboat, right? That 
it's a limited technology in terms of expanding the mind and what it does to your mind, right? You lose a bit of your faculty for memory, but you keep a lot of your other mental faculties. I mean, I would argue that like your cell phone or whatever thing device you have is something constantly, I think COVID kind of bears this out and test scores nationally are bearing it out, like just draining our capacities mentally to process long form media. And so what you have is everything that kind of t caters to like the instantaneous and the now because, and I don't know how you like build up a culture that like um, really says, you know what, like I could go like listen to the CD. I could go to that concert with 20 to 50,000 of my closest, dearest friends. But what I'd rather do is go to the coffee shop and pay and cultivate local arts that like, again, instead of reading the New York Times bestseller list, like I grew up in the 90s, we used to have like these like um, like poetry magazines like hanging out at places that were not, again, before there was Amazon, there was the behemoths of Borders and Barnes and Noble, which took over the local bookshop, which took over, again, like, so there's all this death of things, right? And this local culture that was there when it was like, people knew each other and you could go to them and say, hey, you run a coffee shop and a bookstore. I have a, I have a magazine. I'd like to sell local poetry, right? Maybe you have people saying that we can do that now through like direct ebook, direct to print on Amazon, but I, I don't really see like a real connection and a culture rising out of that. Um, so I know it's a long and winding answer. Um, I don't have a solution. Uh, as someone who studies the, the, the poet Pindar, I mean, the thing that I love about it, about Pindar is his constant descriptions of the local community of like people actually participating in the song and the music. It wasn't like they brought him into Sicily or um, Southern Italy and they said, you know, like bring your whole troop, right? It's not like he has the Rockettes, like paid, organized people who do this. Just the local people who are being trained up. Go read like Sappho or Alcius or something like that. You'll see. Um, and it's, it's amazing the beauty when you invest in your local community and actually practice your own art. There's a world of difference between listening to Bach and actually going to a concert and hearing it. Um, at our, our Newman Center at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, we have a Handel's Messiah concert going on. And occasionally you can listen to Handel's Messiah on CD, it comes around at Christmas time, you hear it. There, huh? You have one here. But like, my office directly adjoins the, um, the, uh, the sanctuary space for our, our church. And when they have all the instruments going and all the vocalists going, I can physically feel the power of that music, which is completely different than me going and putting in my earbuds and having this own little private experience. Um, I just, I don't know, I don't have a good answer, but I'm continually discontent, just like St. Augustine. And as he said, like our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. So maybe the good that's brought about it is that we're not content with the ordinary things of this world and we're just left with the urge for something more. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.